Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Professor Siobhan O'Neill is Professor of Mental Health Sciences at Ulster University and Interim Mental Health Champion for Northern Ireland. Her research programmes focus on trauma, mental illness and suicidal behaviour in Northern Ireland and the transgenerational transmission of trauma. She is now on a mission to improve the mental health of the people of Northern Ireland by promoting evidence-based services and care for those who suffer from mental illness and suicidal thoughts. She advises and assists in the promotion of mental health and well-being through all policies and services throughout the province. Her role is as public advocate for mental health and to be a voice for those otherwise voiceless. Her goal is to communicate the collective voices of people with lived experience and their families and carers and to advocate for communities impacted by mental health inequalities. Welcome, Professor Siobhan O'Neill. How are you, Siobhan? I'm really good, Cathy. I'm having a good morning. Great. And thank you so much for spending, you know, some time with us this morning. You know, your CV is, you know, you have such a an important and critical role in Northern Ireland. Tell us a little bit about why you entered this whole field. What is it that, you know, it, it comes across in your biography that you're so passionate about improving mental health outcomes in Northern Ireland. Tell us a little bit about your role. So my, I guess I, my interest in this started back in 2005 um, when we did a study of mental health in Northern Ireland. It was part of a worldwide study called the World Mental Health Survey Initiative. And it's just been such an amazing study um, that has informed how we deal with mental health, our understanding of mental illness over the past 20 years. And these these studies were conducted in various different countries. So I was the researcher. Brendan Bunting actually was the, the lead investigator. I was a researcher in that study. And when we started to analyse the data, we discovered then that Northern Ireland had really high rates of mental illness and that the troubles was a factor and that there was lots of trauma and people hadn't been receiving help or support. So that really... I guess energized me that that work and then I started studying suicide here and suicidal behavior and that was one of my my next studies you know so as I published and learned more about it it was just so important that as a citizen of Northern Ireland that, that we try and do what we can to learn from this research and, and change things so that we can create a better Northern Ireland and now as a parent that has been like ramped up to a thousand you know it's just so important for the next generation that we get get this stuff right so they don't suffer. So th- that's really what drives me right now is being a parent, being an academic, being a scientist and trying to make sure that the things that we do as scientists influence policy and practice here. So just in terms of framing our discussion, am I right in thinking, this is just me having done my research, that one in eight children in Northern Ireland have thought about attempting suicide? Is that is that accurate? 
I think those figures might be from a recent study of the prevalence of mental illness in children and young people. And it sounds fairly accurate to me. I don't have the data in front of me. You know, if if you ask people, if you ask populations, suicidal thoughts are actually more common than, than you would think. I mean, lots of us question the purpose and meaning of our lives. And of course, there's a lot of talk about suicide in the media and things. And when things get really bad, lots of people do think about suicide as an option. But thankfully, the the proportion of people who who act on those thoughts is much, much lower. And, you know, that's that's the thing we need to latch on to. These are our thoughts that people might have, but most people um, don't act. And most people actually get through those thoughts and go on to flourish and have really meaningful lives. So let's talk about Northern Ireland and why it's a little bit different. So correct me if I'm wrong. So I've I've understood that Northern Ireland has a higher suicide rate than England and the rest of the UK. Is that correct? That we believe that to be the case, but actually the coroner service are now reanalyzing the suicide figures for the last five years, right back to 2015, because we're now understanding that there were drug related deaths that were categorized as suicides for the purposes of, of the, the reporting on suicides that actually shouldn't have been categorized as suicides. So if we take out those drug related deaths that were probably accidental overdoses, we find that our rates now are similar to other regions of the UK. Um, prior to 2015, though, it seems that our rates were higher then, but we need, again, we need to, to refresh those figures and we need to get the more accurate data there. So our rates certainly were much, much lower during the time of the Troubles and they increased way back in 2004. And they seem to be a bit higher than other UK regions after that. And Siobhan, what you've just said is fascinating, isn't it? Because the the suicide rate was lower during the Troubles, which is completely counterintuitive, isn't it? You might think that in a time of great conflict and stress, that people might think, you know, have more suicidal thoughts and suicidal ideation and actually go, you know, it, it seems more intuitive to, to think that might be the case. But that it seems that in the years, the, the legacy of the troubles, the years after the, the active tr- troubles, the suicide rate seems to have gone up. That's right. Um, and actually, this phenomenon is not, it's not unusual or new. And um, we know when we look at other societies that are going through conflict and war, that the suicide rates do tend to be lower at that particular period. And it's believed that that sense of togetherness, that common struggle can actually make people feel that their lives have meaning and purpose, that they're part of something bigger. And those connections people have to their communities in a time of war or violence, that that those provide meaning and purpose and stops people, even in the the darkest of circumstances, stops people from taking their own lives. When you're in a post-conflict society and people are thinking about what the fighting has achieved and what they've done sometimes themselves and what they've seen, that can sometimes lead to feelings of hopelessness that are associated with suicidal behaviour, that sense of, well, what has this all been about? What have we achieved? You know, what is there to live for? Particularly if you feel that your your group, that your community have 
have not benefited from the peace process. That despair can lead to suicidal thoughts. And the other thing, of course, Cathy, is that during a time of war and conflict, people who were unemployed may may have participated in that conflict. They may have drawn a sense of meaning and purpose from the actual conflict itself. And then there's that stigma around suicide when a population is suffering so much. It's thought that people are less likely to accept that a death was a suicide and it might have been categorised as a different type of death for those reasons as well. And suicide was very much stigmatised, you know, when you think of the 70s and the 80s and, you know, typically some religions may have frowned upon suicide. It was perceived to be a sin at one stage. So again, all of these things might mean that there's this artificial suppression of the suicide figures. Yeah, that's fascinating because Northern Ireland is such a cohesive society. It's such a warm society, you know, that it's interesting, isn't it? That despite that sort of social cohesiveness, it can be really hard. It was hard during those times to open up about mental health problems. Yeah, and also when you have a very cohesive society, um, perhaps a more traditional society, people who are on the margins or who don't feel part of that society can feel very, very vulnerable. So I'm thinking of the high rates of suicidal behaviour in our LGBT young people, you know, that that, that marginalisation that people feel, even when society itself is very cohesive, that can lead to increased rates of suicidal thoughts and behaviours and those groups who can't feel part of that society for whatever reason too. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. So the other thing that I know you're very expert on and I'm very interested in is transgenerational trauma, the transmission of trauma, which for many people seems so bizarre that anything that happened to your parents might actually impact on the next generation. So can we talk about that within the context of Northern Ireland and its suicide rates? Absolutely. This is such an important area for me now because I've got my own wee daughter and I'm watching it happen. Those first few years of life and, you know, childhood generally, the things that happen to us then predict uh, our risk of mental illness because at that time the brain's developing and our stress response is being sort of shaped a wee bit more then. So neuroplasticity is at its peak in childhood. So the things that happen to us when we're growing up then will have an influence through the rest of our lives and we know that when you're living in a house with somebody who has a mental illness a trauma related mental illness that life can be very difficult for those children and that through no fault of the parents that 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 environment can create adversities for for those young people so having a parent with post-traumatic stress disorder when we when we think of the features of that disorder you know that hypervigilance that overprotective parenting that you know that lack of of emotional connection that can impact on the attachment between a parent and a child and that can increase that child's risk of of depression and anxiety and then we know that a lot of people in Northern Ireland used alcohol and, and even drugs to cope with the effects of the trauma that they'd witnessed, the effects on their, on their, on their own stress response and on their own body and brain. But again, living with a parent who has a substance and alcohol problem, that, that creates adversity for that young people. And it's not a good environment to, to raise children. So what I'm not saying is that all of the children raised by parents who were affected by trauma will have mental illness. But that we are seeing that in families and communities and, and when we look at poverty on top of that 
as well and inequality. We know that there are parts of Northern Ireland where, where young people haven't had a great start. And for me, that's what transgenerational trauma is. There's also this biological thing that can be passed from one generation to the next. We've seen it in animals, um, you know, where, where children of traumatised parents have a, an exaggerated or elevated stress response. There's lots we can do about that. And as I say, it's mainly been demonstrated in animals, but most of it is about the the parenting and the environment that the child is reared in. So that's why those early interventions, those interventions that target childhood adversities, that target violence, substance use in the home, those are so, so important so that we can stop the, the transgenerational transmission of trauma. That's right. And it's something you and I are both passionate about. One of the things I read which really shocked me is that, and I'd love to know if this is a sort of a historic stat or is it current, that overall 32% of the population in Northern Ireland have reported adverse childhood experiences. So that came from a sort of a, a, a recent report that I read. And I was just wondering, we hear a lot in England about ACEs and the impact of ACEs on sort of long-term outcomes. But in Northern Ireland, are those adverse childhood experiences that we're referring to that might impact on a, the, you know, the current parenting generation, are they generally related to the troubles or other experiences that are traumatic? Oh, that 32% is, again, I think it's really accurate. And childhood adversities are really common and most kids who have adversities go on to flourish. In fact, we have some evidence from a study we did of students showing that it was the no adversity group and sometimes it was overprotective parenting in that group where children had never known or experienced any failure. They had a high risk of mental illness whenever they went to university. It was this moderate adversity group who, who were who, who were actually the, the lowest risk group for mental health problems. So that should reassure all of the parents out there, you know, that adversity in and of itself is not going to damage your child. It's how you cope with life stress and pressures. And that study that you're talking about, the most prominent, the most but common adversity was the breakup of the of the parents' marriage, so divorce or separation. That was the most common adversity. And of course, you know, if we do divorce and separation well, we can actually be role modeling how to manage a relationship, how to manage separation to that next generation. So these things that we categorize as adversities are not always damaging for young people. I think that's such an important message to get out there. But it's where you have multiple adversities. So poverty is a very, very common childhood adversity as well. It creates stress and pressure in the home. And it means, again, that there's an increased risk of mental health problems. And poverty is a legacy of the troubles, because when we look at the area level variation there, we can see that those areas where there's most deprivation are the same areas that have experienced the, the highest rates of violence relating to the troubles. So poverty is, is a troubles related issue. In 2005, we found that 39% of the population had experienced a trauma resulting from the troubles. Now, a lot of those people who were alive then have actually passed on, you know. So we have a generation who haven't experienced the violence of the troubles or lower proportions certainly have experienced the violence of the troubles, but they're still being impacted by those legacy issues, by the poverty, by the, the deprivation that their parents have have endured. And of course, the substance use that's passed on and, and then in the form of, you know, childhood physical punishment of children is actually really common as well here in Northern Ireland, you know, and that's an, that has an impact on, on young people's mental health. That's an adversity too. 
So it's not the direct traumas. That's really what I'm saying. It's not necessarily the trauma exposure that it would have been in our parents' generation. It's the sort of the secondary effects of that on young people that we need to be aware of in Northern Ireland. And I'm, you know, I want to talk to you about what, you know, how parents, how parenting, how the quality of of relationship between a parent and a child can actually prevent psychopathology. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Mm -hmm. But I want to dwell on suicide among young people in Northern Ireland. Where are we at the moment in terms of that? Because I did read some very interesting material on transition to university uh, that that uh, young people were at, had elevated rates is that correct of suicide and self-harm certainly among you know on that transition into uni in the first year yeah we did a study again in 2015 of our own students at Ulster University and we found that around a third of our students had suicidal thoughts and, and that was in the year prior to going to university and one in five of our students had self-harmed at some stage in their in their lifetime you know and when I was going to university a long long time ago I wouldn't have even known what self-harm was so suicidal behavior has become much more common self-harm is, is a way that people have of managing stress but it is still on that continuum of suicidal behavior and we know that it increases the risk of suicide as an outcome too but for the majority of those cases this is about trying to manage that that aversive feeling the aversive feelings that stress and anxiety cause so our young people are, are clearly under a lot of pressure even privileged young people, arguably young people who are preparing for university, who have a, a very bright future ahead of them, they are still feeling this this pressure to the point that, that one in three might feel suicidal. That is incredibly worrying. Um, thankfully, the rates of suicide in young people, as I keep saying, are much, much, much lower than that. Most people don't act on those suicidal thoughts but it does concern us and we need to th- you know, think about how we improve the resilience of that group and what we do for our young people. And our own university have implemented several changes to their, their systems as a result of the work. So that, that transition starts from the moment that a student applies to Ulster University. They get information about our services, our mental health services, our wellbeing services, and those services are available all through that time of transition before they actually start university. So we're hoping that that will change things. And then also our schools are, are developing a mental health and schools framework from our Department for Education. Again, trying to, to really make sure that all young people have access to training and resilience, that schools have a standardised approach to mental health here so that we reduce those risks further. I mean, as you say, Siobhan, it's very common for people of my generation to say, I mean, you know, I, I went to school in the Falls Road. I, I, you know, it was a very deprived area. I didn't grow up there, but it was a very deprived area. And, you know, in our big school, I mean, I'd never heard of anyone self-harming ever. You know, it was it was so this, as you say, these things seem so prevalent in terms of as if self-harm has become a kind of a a much more accepted way of managing stress. This is true. The information that we have about how to cope, about what other people are doing, about what people like us are doing, that really influences how we behave in a crisis. 
You know, once we heard at the start of this pandemic that people were buying toilet roll, we went and bought toilet roll. You know, that sort of contagious effect. And it also, you know, there's so much evidence that this applies equally to self-harm and even suicide. Suicides, particularly in young people, can be impulsive behavioural responses to stress. And the information that young people have about who did this and how they did it, you know, we can see that that does lead to copycat behaviour. A really good example is the Netflix series 13 Reasons Why, which led to an increase even in Ireland of young people using similar methods to self-harm. And, and this was shown in the self-harm registry analysis. So it's it's really it really worries me when we have unsafe conversations on social media or with the general media about suicide, when those conversations emphasise the methods that people have used, because we know they do influence behaviour. And that's a difficult message to get out there. It really is. But also you're reminding me of the sort of the history, you know, obviously, you know, people can study the history of suicide methodology. And we know that, you know, I think when they introduced, you know, different types of cookers or something changed, suddenly the methodology would shift or you could actually prevent suicide by changing things you know access to particular appliances or whatever in the home so it's a very interesting area isn't it humans kind of shift their suicide methodology in relation to access to what you know what they have access to at that time yeah the the access to a method is a really important part of the suicide picture if you feel really suicidal you know if you know how to do it and what to do and you have the methods on hand, then this massively increases the likelihood that you'll die. And we know in the US, when we look at the figures, that access to to guns and firearms there, that that is the dominant method. And that can result in impulsive suicides. One of the most powerful things we've done in the UK that's reduced the the rates of suicide straight away was, was reducing access to paracetamol reducing the numbers available in a pack. And and now we, we hear all the time of, of people who, you know, when they tried to buy paracetamol, the, the shop assistant asked, and, you know, that was an intervention. That was a life-saving intervention. So access to a method is important. It also kind of reiterates this this whole thing of suicide can be an option in the moment when our bodies are suffering from the effects of stress. We can't see any other options. But if we can get someone through that time, then the likelihood is that they won't die by suicide. So this is informing now how we help people who are suicidal, how we help them with their safety plans to get them through those dark times whilst we make sure that we're addressing the underlying issues, that the things that are wrong with their lives that have led to those suicidal thoughts in the first place. And those methods are actually proving really powerful ways of reducing the risk of suicide in people with depression, because we know that by simply treating the mental illness that those suicidal thoughts can sometimes remain and that people can still act in a way that leads to their death when they're in the heat of the moment, when they're in that time of crisis. So that's something we need to address directly. And I think this is the big shift in terms of treatment for suicide prevention that we've seen in the last five years and this is what we need to bring in across Northern Ireland so that suicide prevention interventions 
are delivered to people who are also suffering from mental health problems or even young people who when they're in a time of crisis that suicide something they think about and it's not necessarily related to a really serious mental illness this is a response to crisis and what you're making me think about is what I'm always telling parents is that we have to teach our children to pay attention to our thoughts and how to really develop a kind of an internal mechanism for intervening for nudging oneself out of a feeling of negativity into a bit more you know positive thinking you know being able to be self-sufficient psychologically if you like that self-awareness is so important being able to identify when you're in a state of stress and know that that's not a good place to be making decisions from that you need to regulate and working out ways of doing that and training your body to do that so that you seek out positive reinforcement, you know, to get your mood right up again and that you automatically think I need to walk right now. You know, I need to come off Facebook. This is too much. That kind of self-awareness is so hugely important and it can be taught you know, and that hopeful mindset can also be taught that 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 way that some people have of automatically searching and finding the joy, even in the darkest of things. We can teach that to our children. And that's what we need to do as parents, but also as educators. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly why I do what I do, trying to help parents understand that these are skills you know, it, it's a skill, isn't it, to be able to be resilient. These are resilient habits, making sure they're embedded within family life from a very early age and modeling how we cope. So being able to articulate, oh, I'm feeling a bit down today, but I'm going to do these three things because they always cheer me up. Or I might give my friend a ring or, you know, we're really surfacing our coping strategies in a way that perhaps we've, we need to do these days more than we ever have before as parents. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The modeling is so, so powerful. Children don't learn by telling them to do things. You need to show them how to do it and they will absorb it. They will behave the same way if they see you doing that. So, and it's not about always modeling the good behavior. It's about the rupture and the repair afterwards. It's modeling your regulation. So it's not about being absolutely perfect as as a parent. It's about showing the child that you get angry and this is what we do about it. This is, this is how to bring yourself back back into safe and social is the phrase that I would you know describe it this is how we we cope with that you know with when, when stress hits us it's so so powerful and kids can detect that you know they have that sort of subconscious neuroception they know when we're under stress and pressure so we need we need to do it because they're feeding off that and that's influencing their their mood their their state their emotional state there too so we have a duty to our children to do this for ourselves so that they can do it for themselves what about you know I'm always suggesting to parents this doesn't have to be terribly hard work that around the dinner table just saying what went well today what was difficult you know really and as you say it's not about being happy all the time it's about being able to you know navigate the ebb and flow of different emotions and that sort of emotional literacy really in family life Totally. What, what I do in the car on the way home with my three-year-old, three and a half now, so she's more able for it, I would say, well, what was the best thing that happened today? And then I would ask, well, what would you change? You know, and sometimes it's it's silly things like, you know, such and such was wearing a hair bobble and I didn't like that, you know. But sometimes you get little insights into their world and you can help them then manage those difficult feelings. That those. So, so rather than asking, because kids hate telling you that something was bad about school, or about childminder or anything like that but you know if you could change something that often will get it out of them 
So that's something that, that I try and do. And this can be done in like five minute slots. This needn't take up a lot of time. It's, but it's about using that really precious time that we do have to, to get an insight into our child's world and to help them then manage their own emotions so that they can do this stuff whenever they're adults as well. Absolutely. And be self-sufficient in that regard. I'm very interested in, so just as a very common experience, you know, I've got a 14 year old boy and, you know, at the back of my mind, knowing all this stuff, I worry terribly about boys' mental health. I worry about them being able to open up. I worry about missing any signs of mental ill health because we've seen the stats. We know that boys are more susceptible to not opening up and that it's worrying. Yet we have to, on the other hand, you know, for example, I had a text message from him this morning telling me he's been asked to do something quite stressful at school, which is also a great honor to be able to present something in assembly to a thousand people. So here is the crux, isn't it? Where do you, you know, there's a there's an opportunity to nudge your child into an experience that's a bit nerve-wracking that will stretch them intellectually, stretch them socially and be good for their CV. And on the other hand, we have to be so careful as parents to, you know, we don't want to overprotect them. We need to nudge them through things. But where is the balance between nudging and adding pressure? You know, there's there's like a tipping point, isn't there, between moving your child, nudging and putting on too much pressure. And that is a very, very intuitive judgment, isn't it? Yeah, this is it's really, really difficult because you don't want to traumatize your child. I mean, this happened to me with with one of the days that Annabelle just didn't want to go into school. And I was sort of standing going, should I just kind of lift her and put her in there or should I take her home? And and it's a it's it's something there's no right answer actually. She probably would have been fine, but I took her back home again because I just couldn't do it to her. And I think we learn as parents to kind of we, we sort of know on a subconscious level what what are what our children are feeling and how they're responding so we have to really trust our own judgment our gut instinct there and i think that's all all we can do and if a a situation is really stressful for a child then we talk about that and try and see what we can learn from it but it's impossible to avoid stressful situations and these are learning experiences and you know we can try and reframe them as challenges and reframe that that physical stress response as a, a, actually excitement and and a challenge and something that we can learn from and grow through. But yeah, this is really difficult. I think we need to be really kind to ourselves as well as parents because it's we're never going to get this right. You know, we're just constantly trying to use our, our judgment to do the best we can for our children. But, you know, if we have that strong bond and if we can try and just keep the lines of communication open, even when they don't want to talk, just doing things with our children so that we're there with them and being with them, I think that is so powerful and we can learn to communicate even on a subconscious level it's not always about words and I think with teenagers it's not going to be about words a lot of the time it's just going to be about your presence with them and you can you can learn from from that and you'll you'll have that link and that bond and you won't go too far wrong so it's about helping them puzzle things out you know together and but always with the aim of you know, giving them agency, giving them some autonomy, helping them feel that they will be able to cope when we're not there. And because I'm very interested in this sort of problem where they transition into university and we're seeing it in England as well. I mean, the University of Bristol a few years ago had, had a spate of suicides on point of transition. You know, in my personal opinion, it seems to be that 
early signs of mental ill health might be being missed in those secondary years. And the parents often will try and overprotect rather than us making sure these children are absolutely equipped from the age of 13, 14 for that preparatory process of leaving home in four years. Can that child cultivate social support connections on that first night in the halls of residence? Can they make friends? Can they cook for themselves? Can they manage their money? You know, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because I do see a lot of overprotective parenting practices in the secondary years where we need to find that balance again, don't we? This is so true. Um, And again, our study showed that overprotective and authoritarian parenting where there were very strict rules and young people weren't allowed to do certain things, but they were also shielded from the realities of life and and they, they were never in situations where they failed or made bad choices. Then those kids really struggle whenever they're out literally on their own having to manage and they don't have that support network around them. I think there's a lot, I mean, parents obviously can do this, but I think there's a lot that schools need to do because some parents, we, we feel in Northern Ireland, some parents might be overprotective even because they've gone through the troubles themselves and they just want to give their children better lives. You know, this is not something they do deliberately or knowingly even to, to harm their children. But schools need to be prepping parents and young people for this transition and those life skills, how to cope, how to cook, how to manage your finances, all of those things are are really, really actually crucial. So we need to start building those into the curriculum too. And also knowing how to ask for help and having the words to ask for help. That's really important, being able to communicate that. So I think there's a lot we can do in terms of the preparation. But sadly, the school systems seem to be focused on the academic performance to the detriment of everything else. So we need a bit of a shift there, Cathy. And I don't know how that's going to happen. I can't see much evidence really of it on the ground here. I think it's about making it easy for for teachers, you know, who aren't psychologists or social workers. You know, they've got a lot on their plate. And my my answer, if you like, is that they work in partnership with parents. So uh, you've just mentioned that young people need to know where to turn to for help. If you ask young people in a big secondary school, who would you go to? If you're feeling really, really low, it's never it's never the people that you might expect. It's always their friend or they might text their friend or, you know, all young people need to have a, an aid memoir, an idea of who they could actually turn to when they feel low, when they need cheering up. And I, I always suggest to schools have a dedicated email, sad at whatever the name of the school is, you know, sad at the University of Ulster suicidal at the so children actually young people have very very clear and transparent routes that they practice help seeking as well that they're given an opportunity to you know having a poster on the wall saying call the samaritans is not going to cut it no well oh, this is so good kathy you're absolutely right we need to they need to practice it they need to yep. actually do it when they're not in that state of despair or distress they need to have some experience of phoning that helpline. That's right. That's right. In the PSHE lesson, if I was the teacher, I'd be saying, right, guys, let's ring up the Samaritans and let's practice, you know, ring up this number, ring up Young Minds Helpline. What happens on the other end of that call? And that's something that schools can do in partnership with those organizations as well. They need to, you know, every, even when you and I are in a state of, of upset or distress, it takes a few minutes to think, who could I ring? 
who's going to pick up the phone? Who's going to let me cry down the phone? Who's going to let me, you know, tell them how I'm feeling and they're going to listen? And sometimes those resources are quite, you know, minimal for people. They have to think about it when they're not in that state of distress. Yeah, we talk to people all the time about, well, why didn't you phone the the, the phone number? Um, sure, you know that lifelines there, and they just there's not a chance in hell they're going to do that. It's it's just so far removed from their world. So you need to make organisations and helplines part of that person's world, and you need to to help other people ring. I mean, I've rang people, I've rang lifeline with people. I've sat beside them and put my phone on speaker and done that for somebody with somebody not going through the whole call with them, but just saying that I'm with such and such here and they just want to say hello and they might be calling you back later. You know, so that is such an important thing to do. And even like even making that appointment, taking someone to their, their GP, that, that can be a very powerful thing as well, because it just takes so much courage to do that when you're in a dark place, when you think you're worthless, you know, when you're suicidal, when you're at your lowest point, being able to, to pick up the courage and, and do all those things, everything that's required to get an appointment. It's so huge. You know, that's so massive. So in terms of practical steps, it is about help seeking, practicing that and making sure I, I've actually created a resource, you know, for young people where they can just fill it in. It's like a kind of a phone book of who to ring when they feel particular ways. And it may not be the teacher at school. It might be, you know, their godparent or their uncle or their auntie or their friend or their pen pal. But the point is that there is someone who is thought about as that person that they can go to. This is great. It's a great idea. It's like the safety plan idea. And even that own self, your own self-awareness, writing out a list of things that you can do yourself to improve your mood, signs that things are, are getting a bit low, they're starting to slip. And then having that awareness and having that list that you've already thought about, it just makes it easier to go back there and do something that, that's going to, you know, that's going to lift you up or get the help that you need. So, so yeah, those, those pre-populated safety plans and plans are such a great idea to, to get people through they really, really work. Now, we, we know that anxiety, well, it's just rife over here in England, you know, in, the, in young people. It's the largest mental health disorder, I think, in young people. Older teenage girls seem to be suffering a little bit more than the boys. Is that the case in Northern Ireland as well? Yeah, absolutely. Anxiety is always in all of the studies we've done anxiety generalized anxiety disorder and specific types of phobias they're always the most common mental health problems that we see and they, they take people take the longest period of time to ask for help for anxiety problems as well they don't we don't tend to recognize them as as mental illnesses in the way that we would for example with depression and I, th I think, you know, when in a time of a pandemic, anxiety is actually a really normal response. It's whenever, you know, that, that you're you're setting, you're, you're in that chronic anxiety and you can't ever get rid of those anxious feelings, that, that, that that's the time to get some help. And there are some really powerful strategies that can be used. So early intervention there is, is really important. Understanding the, the stress response and knowing how to get rid of it. I think that's crucial. That needs to be taught in all of our schools. And also, I'm always telling parents that what's so intuitive, you want to hug your anxious child and tell them everything's mm -hmm. okay. And sometimes that really is counterproductive because we need to coach them rather than soothe them. And that seems to be the emerging message from the anxiety research. And that takes, you know, a little bit of learning of those sort of coaching skills. 
Yeah, I mean, it's about problem solving. So thinking about, well, what has caused the anxiety? What is this in response to? And then problem solving that. It's not about magically making the source of the anxiety go away. And and I think there's a generation of parents who, who just showered children with love and attention and affection and told them they were great and they could achieve anything and everything would always be okay. And that is so unhelpful. It's really about teaching problem solving and teaching emotional regulation as well. You know, if there's nothing you can do about that problem, then you you know, you know you're left with these anxious feelings that, that you need to deal with and manage in some way. So it's about knowing the difference there and in, in terms of the things we can control and the things that we can't control and then helping with that emotional regulation and problem solving process. And to what extent, you know, is impulsivity a big factor is in, in male suicide? It's something I know a little bit about as a criminologist, but this impulsivity in teenagers is something of great worry to, you know, great concern. Well, th- well, this is, yeah, this is part of the theories of suicidal behaviour. You know, the, one of the things that we look at more and more now is the action end of it. You know, so the suicidal thoughts might be there in the background, but what prompts actions? And sometimes we see that actions are a behavioural response to a situation of crisis. It's nearly like the body stress response becomes overwhelming and the person can't problem solve. So they, what they do is they, they take their lives or they harm themselves. So impulsivity is it's definitely an important factor, particularly for young people. The adolescent brain is prone to um, impulsivity. You know, that self-regulation hasn't been established yet. People don't have the skills to bring themselves away from that time of acute stress. So it can result in suicidal behaviour. And and as I said, I think how we talk about suicide is so important so that people don't automatically think of suicide as an option whenever they're stressed or they don't go to that particular place that, because, it, you know, because this influences where people go and the methods that people use as well. So I, I think we need to train people that those thoughts are actually a part of life and they're a sign that something needs to change and make sure then that the action that they do in response to those thoughts is about help seeking it's about problem solving it's not an action that could lead to their death and what you're making me think about in terms of a practical resource maybe that I could create is a kind of an a sort of a, a ladder where you can see you know you're feeling this feeling and before anyone would would even think about suicide there are like 50 things that you can do ring a friend email your friend text your friend ask for help see the gp like literally making that very very explicit that there is a pathway to feeling better before just jumping to one of you know action that is absolutely drastic and deadly totally i mean thinking about what has happened in the past you know you thought your life wasn't worth living because this happened and look how you got through it reminding yourself of your own strengths and resilience that's where that's where the experience of failure needs to happen as well you know so that people do have those memories and those experiences to draw upon so that they don't think that their life is over if they have a broken relationship or if they failed an exam or if they don't get you know what they want in terms of of university places and things like that you know that that they have things that they can draw upon and strengths that they can draw from and and we we find it that substances alcohol and drugs can increase that impulsivity in young people and and they're really associated with suicidal behavior in that group too you know and that's again where access to methods and information is so important so that a person doesn't act in a way that that's impulsive that that's related to drugs or alcohol use too 
Um, it always reminds me talking about impulsivity when I was a probation officer for a period of time, you know, and you're dealing with, you know, adult men and you're trying to help them not reoffend. There was a big program called Think First, uh, yeah. you know, just just to try and provide that little tiny space of reflection before you do something that you might regret. And I actually use that in my parenting with my teenage son. You know, I say just whatever happens, just think first, just for five seconds, you know, you're trying to influence this susceptibility to peer pressure and, you know, the, the natural desire to make rash decisions as a teen. Yeah, and, and telling kids to do that is, is really important, but I think we need to train children how to do that. We need to, you know, we need to give them the practice of mindfulness or something that is a mindful activity so they know how to think that they can do it, that it's an automatic part of their repertoire, that when things happen, that they slow down and stop and think, you know, and, and it's really about getting the practice in so that they are rehearsed in it. And then whenever they're in a time of crisis, that it just clicks in automatically so that they, you know, that they don't have to work too hard to get there because, you know, th- them remembering that conversation, that, that that can be difficult. That's a few steps away from it as well. So I, I'm all about practicing and doing it with with your child so that they can learn how to do it themselves. Now, Siobhan, something some parents, when they knew that I was going to interview you, submitted some questions. And I just want to ask you about some of these. So, for example, you know, unfortunately, a lot of young people have experience of a friend self-harming or committing suicide. And it's very, very frightening for parents. Like they, they don't know how to cope with that. They don't know, is it always a good idea to, is it a good idea to bring up the topic of suicide with teenagers in general, because parents are very frightened of triggering and any, uh, you know, the more you talk about it, the more it might happen. So parents are interested in your view on how you, you know, if a suicide happened in a school, for example, what is the best kind of optimal approaches that parents could take to support their own children? I think it depends on the developmental stage of your child and how much awareness your child has. Of, of this issue so very young children you know there's no need to bring it up if it's not part of their world when when children are in secondary school this is very much part of their world so I think it's important that there is open communication and you know if there's been a suicide in a secondary school then I think you know the young people there are going to know about this so I think it is useful to bring that up particularly if it's part of the the child's group of friends or their year group or whatever and your your child will know about this children know from their early teenage years they know about suicide so by not bringing it up you could be conveying a message that this is something we don't talk about and that's not a good message for a child to get because what we want to do is we want to have a generation of young people who can whenever they feel like this they can talk about that they can say this is how I'm feeling right now and so we shouldn't be heaping shame on those feelings you know by not talking about it that that's that's what we can be doing but I think it's important to talk about it in a, in a really helpful way to talk about the fact that whilst the person was you know in, in a really terrible state that this wasn't actually the right course of action and to to really reflect on the things that that person probably should have done rather than what what they did do so the, the focus very quickly needs I think to move from you know if you're ever feeling like that what would you do and, and I think that that's the important focus of the conversation. And it can be a really, really useful conversation to have, focusing on what the, that person who died, what they did 
and and how how they died is really really not helpful and you know that kind of programs almost it's, it's a very strong phrase but you know if we always talk about what they did and how they did it then what you, you're doing is, is making that child think that think about their action and what it's like to be that child who died you know and that's that's not helpful that kind of that kind of thing can can increase the risk of the behavior so it's really important we talk about suicide in the right way in a way that's safe that talks about options about suicide as a preventable death and is real about the the effect on those left behind uh too being proactive and 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 constructive and and actually you know making that young person reflect that it's a shame that you know that that that, that child had multiple options that yeah. that you're trying to show display to your child that that there is a place between making that decision and actually taking that final you know act yeah, this the the idea of the choices that that person had that that is so so important, that absolutely vital, and and ways of of solving or getting around the problems. I think it's so important though that that parents sometimes we have this parents saying don't ever do that, you know, or they say things like you wouldn't think about that yourself, you know, and that again sends a message to the child that this is this is just something we don't talk about. You know, if you have these feelings, you should be ashamed and you shouldn't do anything about them. And that can actually increase risk as well. So it's it's about acknowledging that lots of people feel like this and actually there's so much we can do. So it's about saying sometimes, you know, in life you might feel very low and you might even talk about your own experiences of feeling low. But then critically, it's about the strategies and things that you find helpful. You're always modeling the coping, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. And acknowledging that that life has plenty of ups and downs and we will feel very sad for a while when we lose someone we love. You know, that bereavement that takes a long time to get through that, but we do get through it and there's lots we can do to help us cope in the meantime. So it's about giving that hopeful message and making sure that, that that person, that child is aware of all the choices and the options and the people that they have around them to talk about their options too. And I have to ask you about social media, phones. I'm sure parents are listening to this thing. Oh, I wish Kathy would ask about phones, you know, the extent to which social media, you know, might exacerbate mental health problems. I know from the research that social media can be a very great help for young people in terms of their mental health, but also there are risks around it. We've had a big case in, in England where a young person was quite clearly, her suicide was triggered by what the con- content on certain social media platforms. So we'd love to hear your opinion on that, Siobhan. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is something that's part of my world. I'm on social media and there's a lot of bullying and trolling on on the social media sites that I'm on. And we, you know, we can get other people's endorsements or their words have a very powerful impact on us emotionally you know so as adults even we need to be very careful about how we use this stuff we need to think about our own words in social media and be kind where we can and, and try and be positive and be not be a bad influence in social media ourselves but I think it's about recognizing that this is one part of our world it's not real life that the images that are there are very much a, a, a snapshot at one point in time and 
people, you know, th- this is this is just not real life. We need to be aware of the difference between social media, the so- social media world and real life. And we need to have it as part of a balanced life, I think. And we need to be aware of how we're emotionally responding to what we see in social media too and model that as parents. So I'd be, you know, I'd be guilty of pulling out the phone at the dinner table and I really have to stop myself sometimes. <laughs> This is this is bad modeling. So it's no wonder my child wants something to look at if I'm doing that. So again, it all starts with our own behavior. But I think social media has also been demonized and parents now, you know, they don't know what to do. We're going through a pandemic. Young people need social media to contact their friends and to stay in touch, and to be part of their peer group. So we've got to be very, very, very realistic. And, you know, there isn't so much evidence that screen time in and of itself is very harmful. It's it's all about that balance. You know, if your child's getting enough exercise, if it's not interfering with their sleep and they're getting good quality sleep, you know, so late night social media is not great for children and young people. Um, so if it's not interfering with the other things that you would have as part of a balanced life, then I wouldn't worry about it too much. But I think keep the lines of communication open there. So so sitting with your child as, as their own social media, as their whatever they're doing online so that you can see it and talk about it. I, I try and console myself with the fact that sometimes my child's looking you know, she's she's playing games and, and that can be helpful for her <laughs> development. And we can I can look and we can talk about what what's happening online and that can you know increase our the quality of our relationship. So so it's all about what and how and when and what it's replacing and all of those things rather than simply social, you know, social media per se. Now Siobhan, last question for you, which was actually submitted for the interview. Someone wanted to know what your predictions are in terms of the suicide rates in the UK, what might happen over the next few years, you know, given that we might be in a recession, given that what's happened with COVID, is that being modeled in some way somewhere out there? Are are we, you know, is the picture gloomy or is there room for optimism? So it's really difficult to make predictions based on a pandemic in 2020 because we've never had a pandemic in, in 2020 before our previous pandemics. Yes, there's you know, there's some evidence of an increase in suicide rates, but people, you know, it was a very different experience in the 1800s compared to now. We have so much that we we can do to stay connected. We have vaccines on the way that will reduce the time of the pandemic, you know, and reduce the numbers of people who will die. And there's so many strategies that we're using to suppress the spread of the virus. So there's a few variables, I think, that are important when we look at, at this. And one is the virus and the deaths. And we're doing lots to keep those death rates down right now. But people who are traumatized as a result of COVID related deaths or or have experienced infection themselves, you know, that may well increase their risk of suicide. But for most most cases, it won't lead to suicide, suicide deaths. And, And the evidence so far is that there have been no increases in suicide, certainly in the UK and even internationally. You know, there's just there's no evidence there that there have been increases in suicide rates. The numbers in Northern Ireland, certainly last week when when I spoke to the people who monitor this stuff, were were almost exactly the same. As, as last year, as this time last year. 
We need to be careful about the economic consequences, obviously, because there is data showing us that where we have job losses, that that increases the risk of suicide and and where there is no provision or poor economic provision for those who are affected, then that can also lead to an increase in suicide rates. So what the government does to compensate people who've lost their jobs, to make sure that businesses remain open, all of those things are really, really important to to make sure that we don't have an increase in, in suicides. Keeping schools open is really important as well so that children have that structure so that young people who are under stress, who are in crisis, that they have opportunities for support and help there. Again, all of these things are Suicide Prevention Acts itself. So so I suppose just to summarise it, there's really no evidence at the minute that there will be an increase in suicide rates. And I think if we manage this pandemic well, then there, there shouldn't be. But we need to remain so vigilant because of the number of variables that this pandemic has impacted on. You know, but if you look to hedonic treadmill theory, you'll see there that that most adults, regardless of the stress and pressure that they're under, they will go back to their previous level of functioning. And the data is mirroring that as well. The happiness scores that are coming from the Northern Ireland population surveys are showing that there's only a slight decline in happiness when we compare this time at the minute with, with this time last year. So, yes, this is stressful, but, you know, we, we should be able to get through this. And it, it's all about how it's managed. Well, Siobhan, I'm going to take all of those lovely green shoots and just stop the interview there. <laughs> so thank you so much. Such a privilege to listen to someone who's, you know, so knowledgeable and so experienced. And it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.